If you're uh, new or just visiting with us this morning, this somehow came across your Facebook feed. Welcome. Uh, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here. I'm not from Montreal. Uh, I'm from Oregon, but I did marry a Montrealer, so that's kind of how I got uh, roped into Quebec. Uh, we spent the first years of our marriage together in Oregon doing youth ministry, had three little kids, and then in 2010, we moved here for church planting. And today we have three uh, giant teenagers, and I'm, I serve as the executive pastor here at Church 21, which means I oversee the legal, financial, and operational health of the church. We are in a sermon series called Remodel, and sort of addressing life under lockdown here in Montreal. There'll be, um, we've, we've been in this for a while, so there's a bunch of different stuff that we've tackled. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be uh, hitting some stuff that's pretty specific to our church, but as the pandemic has touched all of our lives and as these issues affect all people everywhere, most of it will, will be of relevance to wherever you are. Uh, just by way of review, so far in this series, we've looked at how prayer and fasting are an appropriate response to the situation that we find ourselves in, how that often leads to repentance and renewal and even revival. And as revival is, is primarily a move of the Spirit, we, we spent a couple weeks ago looking at what it looks like to be filled by the Holy Spirit and what the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit has looked like at different points in church history. And then subsequently, as we're living uh, spirit-led, spirit-filled lives, that the spirit changes everything about the way that we interact with the world. And so uh, as we're moving into the last week and this week and next week, we're getting much more practical about the way that the spirit changes the way that we, like the big things of the spirit always boil down into the everyday decisions and actions of our lives. So last week, Dwight took us at looking at how uh, this can express itself through a posture of hospitality, even uh, under lockdown as we are here in Montreal. Uh, next week, Jordan will be here and be uh, talking through discipleship, so come back for that. This morning, we're looking at another very practical outworking of life in the Spirit, stewardship. Now, uh, for you kids at home, a steward is somebody that receives something from someone else that they're supposed to take care of. They could be managing it investing it, but it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to someone else, and eventually they have to give it back or give an account of how they took care of that thing. And everything that we have, all of our time, all of our talents and skills, all of our treasures, all belong to God, and we are simply stewards of those things. Uh, and the reality is, is that Jesus during this time doesn't want to just remodel our hearts. He wants to remodel everything about our lives, including our time and our talent and our treasures. So that's where we're going this morning looking at what it's like to be stewards in Jesus' kingdom, even while under lockdown. So I'm going to pray again and just ask for the Spirit's help in these things. Spirit, we do ask that you would be present. Only you can connect us across the distance uh, of, of our church being scattered um, rather than gathered this morning uh, due to COVID. Uh, we pray that you would overcome um, the, the isolation and the disconnectedness that we feel as your people. Uh, I pray that you, uh, Spirit, would bring um, power uh, to your word being preached, uh, that you would cause it to come alive and to pierce hearts, uh, because our hearts are often hard to these things. And so we ask that you would do that work this morning and that you would receive much uh, glory as we acknowledge your glory this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
All right. Well, this last Thursday was my birthday. I turned 42 years old. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> the average Canadian man lives to be around 80 years old. So for those of you who are adequate at maths, you've already calculated that I am over halfway done, over halfway used up, uh, barring, you know, being hit by a truck or getting the cancer or something like that. And um, I know some of you like to think this way, but many of you are probably thinking that's a horribly morbid way to do life, to be thinking like, how much have I used? How much do I have left? To be calculating this, that seems unnecessary. But the Bible actually tells us that this is a, that, that, that thinking in this way is a source of wisdom. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now, to number something is to sort of like plumb its depths, to find its edges, to, to quantify it, uh, to turn it into information. And we've been living in the information age now for so long uh, that all of us are maybe even a little bit tired of being quantified. Our phones are spying on us and turning all of our lives into data. And so as we start to talk about quantifying and numbering and all of this stuff, some of you may feel uncomfortable. And certainly there are things you know, privacy concerns uh, with some of this tracking and data that, that are legitimate. Not everything deserves to be known and to be numbered. But if we are truly stewards in this life um, of things that God has given us, uh, then we should take measure of what that is. So Romans chapter 4, verse 12 says, each of us will give an account of himself to God, right? So if you've been given something to steward, maybe you're just learning about this for the first time, this morning. You've been given certain things to steward, and you will have to give an account of them later. Might be a good idea to know what the bounds of that is. So we're going to look a little bit at time uh, and talents, and then spend the rest of our time on treasure, on financial stewardship, because we want hearts of wisdom in this. So first, uh, time. And now for those of us who have made Jesus our Savior, our King, and our treasure, we see uh, the resurrection to eternal life coming. We see immortality. We, we have a great deal of time available to us. But by contrast, the earthly time that we have, the time, the, the mortal time that we have here on earth is, is relatively small and short and finite by comparison. Um, if we count it by days instead of by years, the average Canadian male has about 29,000 days to spend on earth. You ladies get about 1,500 extra days. Good for you. Bonus. Um, globally, though, a lot of people get less than this. Worldwide average is about half of the Canadian average, so maybe 14, 15,000 days. And sadly, many children around the world get less than 1,000 days to live. That's all that they have. As of today, February 14th, 2021, I have lived 15,333 days. And um, that sounds like a lot of days, right? Like, I'm thankful for all of those days. I've already had more days than your, the global average. Um, and uh, if the Canadian average holds true for me, God willing, I have just 13,826 days left, if if I fit the average. And I actually preached, I did this many years ago, I preached on this, and so when I was in my notes from before digging this out, I was able to compare, like, how many days have gone by between these two times. And uh, it's been 1,398 days since I last did this counting business. And I'm thinking, like, what did I do with those 1,398 days? Did I steward those wisely? Because apparently I have to give an account for them. We have to give an account. How will you steward the days 
that God has given you. I find it's really helpful if you think that life is a long time. Just count how many Christmases you get. Yeah, I've got like, what, like 40 Christmases left, maybe. And I won't even remember some of them because I'll have Alzheimer's or something. Time is limited. Not only does God give us a limited amount of time on earth, He also uh, gives us uh, um, personalities and talents or skills. Uh, and for those of us who are in Jesus, we receive spiritual gifts. We have a number of things that we, we bring to bear on this life. And some of these we're just born with. Some of them are nurtured into us by our families. Others are skills that we acquire. And I know that this has fallen a little bit out of vogue, but you've heard of maybe like the 10,000 hours rule. Like if you want to become like mastery level at something, 10,000 hours, people are like, nah, that's not necessarily true. Whatever. You want to be good at something, it takes a long time. 10,000 hours is like three hours a day for 10 years. I don't know of anybody that's doing, I mean, some of you are like practicing violin three hours a day. Good for you. Most of us are not that disciplined. If you're like looking your schedule for something that's taking three hours of your day, it's probably going to be like Netflix or something um, or social media, which is probably not a wise thing to master unless you're in like marketing or public relations and it's your job. Um, But the reality is it just takes a lot of time, you know, after you've like fed yourself and slept and worked and everything. If you want to develop a skill to use in the world, um, you you probably only develop one really great skill in your lifetime. Uh, And not all skills are all that useful, so we should be mindful in what we're investing our time in, sharpening our, our skills. And then out of necessity, we will spend much of our days leveraging our skills and talents to try to earn treasure, little treasures like food, shelter, and clothing, without which we would die in Canada. It's snowing outside right now, and it's like, if I didn't own the clothes I owned, I would have been dead already this morning. Um, And again, we are a a young-ish church. Many people are in their 20s and 30s, and so it's helpful to, like, think through these things. Um, factoring in inflation, we will, as Canadians on average, earn about a million dollars or at least a million dollars over the course of your life. And it sounds like a lot, but it's really like only 25000 a year for 40 years, 40 working years. So many of you will probably earn and steward even more than that. So in summary, let's say you can expect in your life, this is what maybe the Lord would give you on average as a Canadian person or North American person, you're going to have about a million dollars of today's money. Uh, You'll have maybe one really big skill, and you have about 29 to 30,000 days to use those things. And that's what you get. That's kind of the the sum of it. That's what you have. Um, And there's nothing more powerful than numbering and, and showing the limitations of a resource to make it more valuable, right? Scarcity. Once you realize these things are limited, you begin to value them more. Maybe your plans for this afternoon have changed from Netflix to practicing your violin or <laughs> learning French. You know, something you're like, I, I need to double down. This is the only afternoon I get like this. How then should we live? So we're going to pivot to our main passage, uh, the one that Jordan just read for us. And in application of this knowledge, and particularly focusing in on the area of treasure and financial stewardship. So hopefully you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. If you have a different version, great. You can kind of compare the small translation differences. Sermon on the Mount. And there's going to be four points that Jesus makes about financial stewardship that I'm going to highlight for us. So see if you can get all four. All right, Matthew 6, 
starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Let's pause there. First thing Jesus highlights for us is that earthly treasures are of a limited value because they're of a limited nature. They break down. They get stolen. I don't know anyone who's ever had anything eaten by moths, but I'm sure that's a real thing. Um, They're not lasting, and you can't bring them with you into eternity. Uh, But Jesus is inferring here you can send and sort of like foreign exchange your current treasures into eternal treasures by investing in his kingdom here and now. You can send them ahead into eternity. Jesus is warning us that investing too much here in earthly treasures is foolish. It's like being in an Airbnb over the weekend and going in the bathroom and being like, I'm redoing all of this. I'm going to put subway tile in. It is going to be sweet. It's going to cost like five G's, but it'll be so worth it. No, it will not. That is a terrible investment. Uh, You won't even see it completed. You're just there for a weekend. Um, This is the way you should think about your life on earth. It's kind of like a long weekend before eternity starts, right? And, but what's scary though is it's not like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's like what happens on earth doesn't stay on earth. Your eternal, uh, you, you get into eternity by the merit of Jesus, but the way you steward over that one weekend affects and reflects into eternity. It echoes into eternity in terms of your blessings and your station and your responsibilities in the kingdom of God. That should weigh on your mind all the time. You're like, man, I'm, I'm not practicing violin. I'm going to go feed the poor. You know, you're like, your afternoon just keeps pivoting uh, later today. This is something that we should be thinking about. And our hearts are naturally, Jesus is tapping into our, our greed here for like wanting nice things. It's not a bad thing to want nice things. Jesus is just annoyed that we want things that aren't lasting. He's like, it's okay to be greedy, but don't be greedy for this stuff. Like, this stuff's lame. Be greedy for the stuff that matters. Like, when you go to the place where your kids get all of those tokens, it's like casinos for children with a skee-ball, and then they get the tickets, and they're just, like, gambling, and give me more quarters, and you're like, you're just getting tickets. And then you go to the counter where the teenager's standing with all this plastic stuff, and you're trying to guide your children towards a lasting choice of redemption. (laughs) And they're like, oh, look at these little plastic things. Those will break instantly. Why these treasures have value. There's nutritional value. You know, there's something good, but they want these things. And as a parent, you're like, ah, that's the way Jesus feels. Like, why are you investing here when there's the better thing? Even as we, as I try to like frame this for you, your heart though is still clutching your treasures, you're like, speak of these better treasures? What are these better things? If I showed you an iPhone 20, you would just throw your iPhone 12 to the ground and stomp on it. You're like, I want that. I want the better thing. That's a good response. We just need to be intelligent and have a proper perspective on what is actually valuable. And our hearts will naturally go there. Um, Money stuff is really just heart stuff. Uh, Matthew, let's keep going. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The second thing that Jesus highlights for us is that our hearts tend to follow our money. Or you can even state it conversely, we tend to invest in things that we care about. 
This is the primary reason that Jesus asks us to invest in his kingdom. He's not really after our money. He already owns everything, including your treasure. So it'd be super weird for us to be giving him stuff that's already his. That doesn't make any sense. The only logical conclusion here is that Jesus is just after our hearts. And I'll say it again. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. And he knows your heart is tied to your money and vice versa. And so he asks you to send it forward into eternity because he wants your heart aligned with his in his kingdom by investing in it here and now. And he gives us stuff to steward rather than just doing things directly. It would be so much easier if Jesus did everything directly, but he involves us because he wants us to, he wants to see if we will invest the way he would have invested, and he wants our hearts to get involved in the family business. He wants to train us in this. Um, And so just to clarify, as we kind of like press deeper into this, good stewardship, biblical stewardship, isn't just going and writing a check for the total uh, annual salary of all of your income to the church. That's, that's not the, the limitation of what we're talking about here. Good stewardship is also buying food and clothing for your family and even maybe choosing to buy food and clothing from sustainable or ethically sourced uh, places. Like you, you make these choices just not just for um, the movement of the gospel and the great commission and planting of churches, but also for God working through you to care for your spouse, to care for your children, to care for your uh, grandparents who are aging, to care for your neighbor and your community and the earth. The stewardship is a whole life kind of thing. Just to just to clarify that. Um, I don't know if you, this is something that I've heard. I don't have all of the exact details, so forgive me if someone knows better and I flub this up. But my understanding is that somebody a long time ago in Quebec invested a bunch of money. And now, I'm not sure they're even alive anymore, but there's like a trust fund that the dividends and the interest out of that are paying for most of the salaries of the denominational leaders of our, the denomination we're a part of here in Quebec. What a cool stewardship move, right? He could have just written a check to the church, but instead he invested wisely. And now for the rest of time, unless something really bad happens to the stock market, like it's just paying. It's just paying for stuff, which is alleviating in turn pressure from the churches in Quebec, which are not wealthy, from having to give more to the denomination, which would be a good thing. But they don't have to give as much because it's covered. Wise stewardship. So just to sort of broaden your, your uh, perspective, what we're talking about here. It's not just putting money into the plate on Sunday morning as it goes by. It's whole life caring, stewarding for the creation, for your family, and being wise in your investments. It even includes uh, on Valentine's Day, happy Valentine's Day to you, it includes uh, buying chocolate or taking your spouse out to dinner or even a night away to steward well your marriage relationship. Um, that that as that it illustrates appropriately and generously the love that Christ has for the church so much so that people when they see it they say man if Jesus loves the church the way that guy loves his wife I want in I want in good stewardship isn't a stingy thing it's not a penny pinching thing it's a generous overflowing thing Jesus wants our hearts to be joyful and generous steward. Money issues are really just 
heart issues. Uh, Skip down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, love and hate are feelings that come from the heart. Even though Jesus is talking about money, he's talking about heart issues. And he wants our hearts in this because he knows we're only really good at like loving one thing at a time. And money is an awful thing to love and trust in. It makes uh, Money is a good servant, but a terrible master. So Jesus' third point here is that money can enslave you if not properly put in its place, if not a, an, a tool to be stewarded. And one of the ways this happens is, and this is particularly an issue for North Americans, is as wealthy as we are, uh, that we have the t- constant temptation to look to our treasure for security and solutions, that we begin to look to it to be the answer to our problems, um, that we look at our bank account balance to feel better, our insurance plans to make us feel safe, our RSP retirement plans, all of this stuff, tax refunds, you begin to look to those things to give you um, satisfaction, and more money will not fix the anxiety and the problems that you feel. And this is, a, this is a temptation for me in that this is a constant thing that I face and that I deal with our family finances, our family business finances that we have. And I'm also managing the church finances. So it's a lot of pennies, a lot of bank accounts and payrolls and insurance and contracts and all kinds of tax things and scary letters from the government. That you're like, oh, I really don't want to open this and see what it says. It would be easy to allow that to overwhelm my sense of safety and security if that was rooted in a bank balance or a spreadsheet or in a sales report. But as long as I am rooted and trusting in Jesus and looking to him for my sense of security, then these things don't overwhelm me. But it is that time of year when I'm sure many of you are dealing with tax stuff and looking at things, you're opening your credit card statement from your holiday spending, and you're feeling anxious. What does Jesus say, though? Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Man, what a section of verses. What power. I feel like we could easily have just done this section and then moved into addressing the massive amount of anxiety that we're all feeling right now during, you know, pandemic and COVID and fear of illness and loss and the economy and lockdown restrictions and politics and the terrifying erosion of free speech that we're witnessing. Um, All of this stuff, quite a long list of 
scary things. Have you seen how they're testing for COVID now in China? Like up the back end with a swab? It's more accurate, they say. Please do not let that be a thing that comes here. We, it'll just be the thing that breaks us. We can't handle it. Jesus' fourth point is a grace. If God feeds the birds, if God clothes the flowers, how much more won't he care for us? He knows what we need. God is sovereign, and you can't add a single hour to your life. And we did count, right? 29,000, 30,000 hours. You do not get an extra few because you sweated it out. It's already scheduled. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to be anxious about. And I know some of you, like we're brushing really close here to the problem of pain and God's sovereignty. And some of you say, oh, time out. How come so many people are starving to death if God's really, you know, managing all of this stuff? And that is a huge side issue, which we have addressed before from the pulpit. I'm sure you can go back and find it. Um, There are good answers to that question, and you can do the study. We just don't have time to get into it now. uh, C.S. Lewis, the problem of pain is a good place to start. Um, But What I will say is this, we should judge God's care and his promises by our own objective experience of life. That's where you should start. And I know even that some folks, you have known people and you've had situations you don't fully understand, things that God has done in your life you don't fully understand, but we should start there. The stuff you see on TV and the internet, you don't know those situations. You don't know those people. You don't know how it's being spun. You don't know what God's doing in their lives. It's very difficult to judge. Um, We have to judge by God's own care in our own lives. Strategic pause. When we first got married, we were so poor. Um, I was out of school. We had finished. We graduated college. And I was looking for a job um, in Oregon as a youth pastor at a church, wanted to work. Uh, but I, in the meantime, I was working at Costco pushing shopping carts, which I loved, strangely. So, or, you know, clicking them together, dun, 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 don't have to talk to anybody. And um, it was awesome, but they did not pay much. It was part-time, so we were really tight. We were living in subsidized housing, counting every penny. Um, there was this flower shop kind of farm thing on the way home from work. And once a week, I would buy a 10-cent carnation to bring to my new bride. And she loved it. It was like a treasure to her because it literally was like, how much did you spend on this? I'm like, 10 cents, 10 cents. It was tight. And then eventually, I did get a job uh, at a church. But guess what? Youth pastors don't make much money. It's like poverty line youth pastors. And then we started having children, and we bought a house with a mortgage. It was maybe not wise. And, uh, and so things were tight for many years for a long time. And I remember at one particularly low moment, I remember saying to my wife, Severine, I'm like, well, we definitely have enough money for food for today and maybe tomorrow. After that, I'm not, I'm not positive. Um, but upside, if what I said, if that statement always remains true, that today we have food and probably tomorrow, as long as that always remains true on any given day, we'll be fine. I'm going to wait until we don't have food or money for food today. Then I'll panic. Then I'll freak out. And uh, all these years later, there has never been a day, by God's grace, that our family has lacked uh, clothing, food, shelter. We've always had it every single day. There's always been something. And it's not to say that it's like, oh, we had everything that are wanted or everything that our hearts desired, and yet the Lord provided what we really needed. And then so much more, so much more. Jesus' four points boil down to this. Investing in earthly treasures is foolish. We should invest in the better things by investing in the kingdom here 
and now. Jesus only wants us to invest in the kingdom because he wants our hearts, and he knows that our hearts follow after our treasures, and that trusting in money and investing in things here and now can be a terrible master. It leads to anxiety. But fourthly, we shouldn't be anxious because Jesus is able to meet all of our needs uh, by his sovereign hand. And that actually then sort of comes full circle and frees our hearts to be able to invest sacrificially in Jesus's kingdom. And honestly, I think if, if it left it at that, like that would be enough. And yet God is so generous and so desires for us to get this, to have a complete perspective change. So our hearts just naturally desire what is wise and good, that he doesn't just leave it at that. We can go to the Old Testament, our other main passage for this morning, Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Now, this is God speaking to the Israelite nation about them failing to bring in the tithe, the legally sort of mandated tithes and offerings into the temple. Verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and in your contributions? You are, a cur- you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. What's going on in this passage? They're not bringing the full portion or tithe into the temple. And God is saying like, that's actually mine. It actually belongs to me. And by not remitting it, you're stealing from me. Stealing from God is kind of a scary thing too because stealing on its own is like a sin. Stealing from God feels like a super sin or like a double sin somehow, um, something to be mindful of, that if the Lord has moved you to give something and you don't give it, you're actually stealing from him. And rather than God being like, and so now the hammer coming down because you've been stealing from me. No, God moves into a position of generosity and whimsy. It's really interesting what he does here. He says to test him. Now, a word on testing God. Are we supposed to test God? No, we're not supposed to test God. Jesus affirms this. Satan's trying to get him to jump off the temple, and he's like, oh, God will rescue you, right? Just test him. Jesus is like, we do not test the Father. Okay, so we don't do that. But here is the one place that the Bible makes very clear. We are allowed to test God. God is actually like daring us to test him in this. That if you bring in the whole tithe, if you are generous and bringing that in, see that I won't have your back. See that I won't bless you, that I won't meet your needs. Oh, you think, you think I can't do that? Try me. Test me. Uh, we moved to Quebec back in 2010, as I was mentioning, uh, with 30 days of money in the bank. No job offer, no missionary uh, support uh, raise, no even legal work visa for me to be able to actually do a job and no idea what I was going to do for money when we got here. Only a very clear um, uh, leading from God on when and where. And I would not advise doing this unless you have that, then obey. But I generally discourage people when they try to bring this up, even though I did it. Because by the second month, we had run out of money. (laughs) And the day rent was due, we found over $700 in cash in our files. 
I have no idea to this day where that money came from. As you heard from our earlier life description, we did not have hundreds of dollars floating around our house, just getting lost in places. We would have found it, you know? So I have no idea where that came from. Um, God simply provided in a miraculous way. He's, he's printing the money somewhere and slipping it in. Um, if you've never seen God provide for you in a miraculous way, it's really easy. You become generous, and then you are overly generous, and you impoverish yourself through your generosity, and then you lean on the Lord to provide for you in miraculous ways. And he's like, okay, now we're going to have some fun. This is something that you can do. Now, this stuff can go into weird places. So with like money and God and God blessing you and all this stuff. So I just want to clarify a couple of things, what, it, what this is and what this isn't. Um, here's what this is. If you prove to be a faithful steward, meaning your hands are pretty free, like God puts money into your hands as a steward and it doesn't go in your pocket, it's going back out into his kingdom and you're stewarding like that, then he will likely send more through you because you're a good and faithful steward. You're stewarding well and wisely. And he's looking for those. And it says your vines will flourish, right? You'll have more fruit and the devourer, the locusts won't come and eat all of your fruit, which in you know, all these agrarian analogies. This is like, you'll have more sales on your Etsy store and less chargebacks, you know, from the credit cards. Okay, so that's what that can be. But here's what this is not. You've all seen this on TV, the, the, the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth uh, preaching. And sadly, this exists in Montreal. There are churches here that do this. Pastors that preach a health and wealth gospel that sense essentially, if you give money to God, he's like contractually obligated to remunerate you and bless you a hundredfold in this life monetarily so you can drive, you know, a really fancy car and eat off of gold plates. That God just wants you to be wealthy if you have enough faith and you're willing to just, you know, put some seed money into these guys' pockets. And we want to be clear, we talked about this at our last elders meeting, not that there was any real discussion on it, but just like we want to be clear, like this is a false teaching. This is not biblical. Uh, and um, God can and will care for your needs, but it is not his will or is it biblical for all Christians to become fantastically wealthy. That's not the trajectory. Um, you can look uh, at Jesus's life or any of his apostles for a great example of this. Now, we'd also like to make it clear that it isn't wrong or sinful to be wealthy. God does bless certain people, certain Christians with uh, great wealth, with which then they can be ultra generous with um, and, and can give to the work of the church. They can uh, alleviate suffering around the world with the heart of Jesus. They can fight injustice. Um, the world would be a much crueler place if it was not for legions of uh, Christian uh, business people and professionals who just make more than average and are more than average generous with that and live simple lives. Uh, along with this, also it's maybe important to to note that it is it's equally inappropriate to have a poverty theology. And this is the idea where some people say, you know, I I, I think it's more holy to have less to take a you know vow of poverty or something like that. Um, that it, it's somehow better or more holy. Unfortunately, lazy people will use this excuse to do no work and just kind of live off of the system. Um, and instead of working like God has obviously given them the ability to do and then using that money to care for themselves and for other people. Now, obviously, some people are legitimately uh, stuck in uh, poverty and sometimes multi-generational, even racially motivated poverty. And they are 
It's not for lack of working hard and often at working jobs that are way harder and more unpleasant than any of you have ever had to do. Not talking about those situations, but able-bodied men and women who are living off of the system just because they can't find their dream job, their special gig. They're like, you know, God has called me to be a video game tester and I practice every day, but no one will hire me. So until then, you know, welfare. You will have some explaining to do when the stewardship report comes out. That is a huge problem. And the Bible makes it very clear that for, for able-bodied people to not provide for your family is, is, to make, is to be worse than an unbeliever. And I don't know, like that's, those are strong words from Scripture. So good rule of thumb here, make as much money as God enables you to. Give as much money of it, as much money away as you can, as Jesus directs as his steward. I don't know, it's just a really brief story. I don't know if you guys have ever gone to the airport and flown internationally. You could raise your hand at home. I love having people raise their hand. It's just so, okay, no feedback. Thank you, Trenton. I haven't asked the question yet, but if you travel internationally and you go through the airport and you're in like that no man's land where you're like not technically in any particular country, what do you find? The duty-free stores. Yes, duty-free. And there's all these luxury items and like stuff that you don't really need, but you don't have to pay any taxes on it. And so people, it's amazing, really, this concept. You're in no, you're like nowhere and you acquire something and it goes in, but you can't take it with you on the plane because apparently your foot goes into a country briefly and the tax man will get you. So they put it in this special bag of nowhere. And that bag of nowhere is carried by a stewardess somehow. This, the law around this is really fascinating. Like if I had enough of those bags and I built a house, <laughs> tax-free, right? Just need stewardesses to hold it up. I don't know how it works, but they bring it to you on the plane. And once you're high enough in the sky, the tax man can't see you. They give it to you. So weird, like it appeared. Anyways, the guy that came up with this idea is named Chuck Feeney, and he made like $8 billion, and then he gave it all away. He lived very simple life, driving like a bicycle or something, a little car. Like he just lived very simply, and he tried to give it away secretly, but there were some lawsuits with his partners who didn't want to give everything away, and it came out that he was doing this. And he's like, I just wanted to make a bunch of money to help people and give it away. And, um, and, uh, and eventually he's like, well, now that it's out, he's like, he went to all the other high net worth people and he invented the giving pledge. You guys heard of this? So it was like, people like, just give it all away. It's fun. It's fun. Believe me. Uh, so this is, again, just an example of stewardship, like invent. We need more people to invent amazing tax evasion, not tax evasion. Let me restate <laughs> this. Amazing ways to generate revenue that then can go into church planting in Quebec. There we go. That's what I want to say. All right, application time. So let's say you want to invest in God's kingdom and you want to invest uh, wisely and, and generously and sacrificially, not because you feel like you have to, but because God loves you and you want to love God back and because you recognize you're a part of this kingdom and you're like, I want the better treasure. I, I want that. And I want to take God up on his offer to see, like, can he meet my needs even if I give too much? So where do you go? Well, your primary biblical responsibility is to your local church family. So in line with this thinking, if Church 21 is your local church, this translates into giving to like the general offering. Uh, and that you would get a tax receipt for that. And that goes to our church budget, which I mentioned last week, but I'll say again, it's $230,000 this year is our church budget. And there's a rough breakout of this is how this is going to be spent. About 10% goes to overhead regional type stuff mostly boring stuff, 
insurance, banking, accounting, HR, office rental where we're filming, and, and that type of expenses. Stuff that we share with the other churches and ministries in our larger legal entity. And this is what's really cool about this, is we as the English church who started this thing, we house other smaller churches and things and house church movements inside our legal entity to, to provide them the framework to be able to do these things. And then they are gently birthed out into the world, into their own things. And we're in the, the process of some of these birthings uh, over this year, uh, developing new legal entities. And additionally, this allows for church planters to come, and we can issue work visas for them to come and plant churches in Quebec. This is all just in this little 10%. Very cool. About 45% goes towards local staffing costs. And, uh, and so that would be like uh, Jordan and part-time for Trenton, a little bit for Evan. Uh, and so this is kind of spread around. But I, just, I was realizing for the first time, this weekend is like an amazing weekend. I ran payroll yesterday to go on Monday. For the very first time, we are paying. Uh, Jordan quit his other job and is full-time with us. And for the first time ever, as of this weekend, we are actually physically paying a single person a full-time salary out of the offering. Very, very excited. We kind of like cheated before where we were like, well, we pay Jordan three quarter and then pay Trent in the other quarter. But it was like, finally, we're really doing it for the first time. Huge milestone for us. About 30% goes into operations. So technology, like what you're experiencing right now, supplies, uh, building rentals. So when we, we meet in person in a various place locations and you take those little communion cups, all of that's paid out of that. And then we give about 10% away to church planting and other ministries and 5% goes into savings for a rainy day. Again, biblically, this would be the primary area of investment. Uh, most uh, biblical scholars are looking back at this Malachi passage, saying the temple of God, like today, we as the Christians, as spiritual stones, build the, the house of God together, and the Spirit dwells in us, and collectively we are the church, that there's this sort of continuation uh, in this way. And so they point to this, say, like the tithe should come to the local church, and that if it doesn't, you're stealing from God. That's kind of how they'll frame that. You can research this more and get any opinion you want on the internet if you like, but most people would read it in that way. How much do you give? Again, there's lots of opinions on this, but most would say a tenth is a sort of biblical-ish sounding way of starting point to try to start there, and that's usually a good space. C.S. Lewis says, if it doesn't hurt a little, you're probably not giving enough. You should feel it a little bit. And so 10%, you're going to feel, especially if you do it before taxes, like on top of everything else. And the Bible talks about this being your first fruits, and that's why you'd put it at the top. And everything is agrarian in the Bible, which is tough for us because none of us are farmers probably. But if you're a farmer, you're watching this. The first fruits on the vine, it's like you work all winter, you ate all the fruit, it's gone. Then you're growing more fruit and hoping and waiting for it to come. And finally the fruit arrives and you cut it off and you don't eat it. You don't store it. You give it away. You give it to the temple. Why? Because you're trusting. You're like, that might have been all of it and we just gave it away. Will there be more? We have faith that there will be more. The other 90% is coming. That's why we talk about first fruits. Now, as we get into this, you guys are like, oh, that's like a lot of money. I was excited about the better treasures, but now I'm like counting the, counting the cost here. This is starting to feel like there's like pain involved in this. So I, I want to just like recognize those objections, those feelings, those, that's natural. Um, some of you are saying like, well, we live in like a socialist. I know you're from Oregon. There's no sales tax in Oregon. Like you have no idea. But like there's a lot of taxes here. It's like 15% sales tax. And before that, it's like up to 50. I figured out once, if you're really not smart with your taxes in Quebec, you can pay 55% income tax. That's if you've really done a bad job. And that's a lot. That's a lot. So you're saying you want me to pay taxes 
but also give like 10, 15, 20% to, to what God's doing in the world. That's, that's, it's too much. It's insane. And if you're saying that and you're feeling that, I understand those feelings, but I also want to say to you, you are asking the wrong questions. You are thinking about this totally wrong. We, we, are, we walk upon this earth as kings and queens in God's kingdom. We have been given stewardship and dominion, and death for us will be fleeting. We are ultimately immortal, and we should walk as kings and queens. This is why C.S. Lewis made these kids in Kings and Queens in Narnia. That's our role as human beings on earth, is to move with power, not as kings and queens that take from the people and enrich ourselves, but that pour out blessings, that like Jesus did, that they pour out their lives in sacrificial servant leadership, that you are royalty. Start acting like it. Think differently. This is your eternal stasis, and this is like your testing period. This is the driver's test. Will you steward wisely? Will you steward benevolently? Will you be generous? You will not be thinking about how much you have left over. When the Lord begins to see you do this, he'll be like, yes, now we're cooking, and things will move you've been drafted into the majors and you're still playing t-ball. You know, to throw a baseball analogy in there for Dwight. I don't even know if there's an equivalent in hockey, but NHL and then like ball hockey or deck hockey, you know. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to see Wayne Gretzky playing ball hockey. And so um, this, is, this is then, you know, for you wrestling with this and yet part of you is like, yeah, you know, no, I'm just going to steal what belongs to God and keep it for myself and see how that goes. It's not good. Um, somebody said, you, you, you can't outgive God. Once you start that, that movement, he's like, oh, we're playing this game. All right, let's see who's going to win. Paul does a great job of painting this picture in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you want to turn there quickly. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly, sowing agrarian again, I know, putting seeds in the ground. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, heart issue, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times that you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seeds for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous. Enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Man, delight in giving and God will give you even more to give away. He wants joyful givers. He's not, we're not looking for compulsion or guilt this morning. Trying to point something beautiful out to you and have you fall in love with that. Joyful giving comes from a change of heart, and a change of heart comes from a change of perspective to be able to see more clearly. That's what we're shooting for this morning. Okay, so that's the giving to the church. You can also give to something we call the care fund. You do not get a tax receipt for this, but this is a way for us to be able to take care of people in our church who are having financial struggles. 
Um, and so this is something for you to be aware of. I'll post the link later that, of where to go to give to the offering and where to go to give to the care fund, and you can give to that. It's outside of our legal charter in terms of what we're allowed to give receipts for, but it does go to help people um, you know, who are struggling, and, and we want to be able to do that. And then there are a couple of additional ways you can invest in the kingdom of God above and beyond your participation in the church. You can support uh, missionaries who are going outside of unfunded areas to bring the gospel to different parts of the world and raising support. And again, many of our staff have come to Quebec um, in that mode that they've raised money to come from generous people who are giving above and beyond their tithe. So that's not overburdening the young church plants that are happening here. And then also, fourthly, you can consider um, developing some liquidity in your personal budget to give just directly as God leads to situations that you find in your proximity. Um, and this is not so much, um, you know, giving loonies to panhandlers, though it could mean that if the Lord directs. I'm thinking more like your neighbor has surgery and you send them like a box of groceries or a, or, or a meal, that you have liquidity ready in your life to be able to do that type of thing, that kind of hospitality that, that Dwight spoke about last week. And, you know, there's more ways, but once you head down this road, you'll find that your heart quickly gets involved and, and moves in this direction and eventually leads you in this your heart will lead the way. If you'd like to study this further, I highly recommend uh, reading The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Um, you can get it online, uh, Amazon, or you can get it for Kindle. It's a short, like, little baby book full of stories. So even if you don't normally read uh, things, you can read this book, I promise you. Or if you refuse to read books, you have no excuse because you can go to Right Now Media, you get a free account from our website, and there's not one but two versions of this book in video format with Randy Elkhorn talking or whatever, on there, you can, you can search that up and just watch it. Conclusion. All right. Thirsty business doing this. Okay, last week, my wife and I finished watching the show that we were watching. So we were stewarding some of our rest time and bonding together and uh, enjoying the fruits. And... Uh, and we finished our show. And you know how that is because you watch some show and it takes you a long time to get through it. And then when you're done the show, you're like, now what? And so we were at that crossroads. And I was like, well, there's this show about people who are going to heaven called The Good Place that I heard about on this podcast. I would like to try that. And so <clears throat> we only watched two episodes and then I don't think we're going to watch anymore. But so no spoilers, but this show is basically about this world where like The Good Place, it's like their ver show writer's version of heaven. And this lady ends up in there by accident. I don't know if it's like an accounting error or something like that. But she's not supposed to be there. She was supposed to go to the bad place. And it's so funny because on the very first day of being in the good place, there's this orientation video they make you watch. And as it's going, they describe their system of, you know, they measured and quantified every little thing you did, negative things, positive things, kind of weighed it all out. You know, if you like um, cut someone off in traffic, that was negative so many points. Oh, you did that seven times in your life, negative, negative. Or, you know, you were eating, you were, you were eating and you were about to talk with, eat with your mouth open and potentially nauseate the people around you, but you held back, you kept your mouth closed. And that was worth so many points positive and you pet a puppy on the head, you know, this kind of thing. They're quantifying. You can pause it. You have to pause it and read all of the little things because they are hilarious. Um, but what was unbelievably damning about the show 
was how incredibly high your score had to be to get in. You literally needed to be changing the diapers of lepers to be good enough to get in. It was like that high. And then everyone else went to the bad place. And they're like, they're like, what's the bad place like? They're like, I can't tell you, but I can play a sound clip. And it sounded bad, like hell. And I'm like, wow, these people making the show are not universalists. <laughs> like, they're, they're really harsh. Like, nobody gets to go to the good place. Everybody's bad. And this lady, she's like, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm wrecking everything. And she's like, at one point, I just can't believe they're even making this happen in a, in a secular show like this. But she's like, if only there was a way for me to be here legitimately. If there only a way to stay. And I'm like, Jesus is the way. That's what he said. He's like, I am the way and the truth of life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Early Christians were called followers of the way Jesus is the way in. That, that the biblical view of the good place of heaven is so much more severe than what that show is pointing. You can't have, you have to have an infinitely perfect good score with zero black marks at all to get in because God is perfectly holy and righteous. Everyone goes to the bad place except for Jesus or those who Jesus trades papers with, right? When you're in school and you trade papers with the smart kid in class, you get the A+, plus, he gets the F. Jesus takes that to the cross, that through the finished work of Jesus, you can receive the ability to enter into his kingdom and become a citizen in his kingdom. And I, I, I say all of this because Pandemic life has kind of destroyed all of our little life patterns that we're used to. So now we have new life patterns. And I know for many of us, we have just been trying to get by and not making thoughtful, wise choices with these life patterns. So I know some of you at home, you know, are sitting on a beanbag in a snuggly with a hangover and you're like, I've not been making good life choices. And during the pandemic, I, I binge watched The Good Life last night, you know, or whatever. Like, it, 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 it's, it, there can be, a, we're talking about heavy, weighty things this morning, being a good steward. And you're like, I have been a bad steward. And maybe not just during pandemic, I've always been a bad steward. I've struggled with this. And you're feeling condemned. And, and, and I say this because I want you to know that because of the finished work of Jesus, you don't have to be a good steward at these things to get into the kingdom of God, but instead we get to be good stewards because Jesus has purchased our citizenship. Already you are a king or queen in Jesus' kingdom if you have given your life over to him. He has made you into his image, and he's like, now let's do fun things together. And you get to participate in this regardless of your past performance and even your future performance, which is dubious. Jesus will work this stuff out in you. And if you have not encountered Jesus yet, if you've not heard the good news of how he can give this to you as a free gift, man, start there. Start there. There, you need something better than, than self-actualization or moralism or religious striving to just try to be good enough to stay, good enough to get into the good place. You need to repent of all that. Repent of the, your sin. Repent of the good works. Instead, turn to Jesus and his finished work that he will bring you in. And then you get to steward out of, of joy and love that you're not seeking the Father's love, but you're stewarding well and being generous because the Lord loves you, that you're not seeking life, but you're stewarding well because you've been made alive in Christ already. If you do this, if you, if you give your heart to Jesus this morning, please tell someone. Um, the Christian walk, this way, is not to be walked alone. It's to be walked in community, and it's harder to have community when you're at home watching this. So please email us, engage at church21.ca, message us in the chat, 
um, uh, reach out to someone that you know, please let us know that you're, you've made that decision or if you have questions about that, questions about Jesus, the Bible, the gospel. If you have any questions about any financial stewardship stuff or specifics about our church, you can email me, brian.stegner at church21.ca. Post that in the chat in a minute. And um, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to move into a time of response. We need the Spirit to come and remodel our hearts to give us a new perspective so we treasure the greater things and we become generous the way Jesus has been generous with us. Uh, Jesus, we do need your heart. Help us to have eyes to see that we're not just remodeling uh, things that are, that are set to be uh, left behind, but that we are investing in your kingdom and that we would not do so out of compulsion, fear, guilt, but out of joy, out of recognition of the, of the true nature of our existence, of our, of our immortality and our position in your kingdom as citizens. Lord, help us to, help us to uh, just transform the city of Montreal through our uh, generosity, that that would be something that captures the hearts in the city and that people would see the way that we love one another in this, in our care for one another, in our stewardship, that they would be drawn in by the love we show for one another, as you, as you say in the scriptures. We ask you, Spirit, uh, that you would do this. Only you can do this in us. Uh, we are helpless without you. So we ask that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.